Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 23rd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardow, and this is your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient developments in appellate law. On this eve of Christmas Eve, we have a, a special present for you. We have an encore presentation of two conversations from previous episodes that provide authoritative and detailed and honest and, and forthright insights on what is the most essential theme of this program, the most effective and persuasive and successful practice of appellate law. We hear first uh, my conversation with Justice Nora Manella from Division 4 of California's 2nd Appellate District. We'll hear her opine on lessons learned throughout her career, which included a brief stop on Capitol Hill, an acclaimed stint as the U.S. Attorney for California's Central District, and time on both the federal and state bench, she'll describe the, the most effective and, and some less effective appellate practices that she witnesses currently from her post in the California Courts of Appeal. Next, we'll hear my chat with Mark Haddad, a partner with Sidley Austin, on his experience as trying appeals before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Haddad was a former clerk for Justice William Brennan, and he describes the unique strategies and, and novel approaches that he employs when trying matters before the country's court of last resort. Without any further preamble, here's Justice Nora Manella. I'm tremendously honored to be joined now by a, a longtime fixture of the California legal community, a former U.S. Attorney for the Central District, Federal District Court Judge, and current Appellate Justice on the Cal Court of Appeal, Second Appellate District, Justice Nora Manella. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're talking today principally about appellate practice generally and some thoughts and guidance that you might have for appellate counselors applying their trade, some practices or philosophies they might do well to to either espouse or, or eschew. But um, before we get into the nitty-gritty of appellate best practices, perhaps we could back up and speak about how you yourself came to, to find yourself on the, uh, the California appellate bench. So uh, kind of going all the way back, you grew up um, here in Los Angeles, and your father, Arthur Manella, was a, a prominent tax attorney here in, in Los Angeles and founded the firm. And Manella, of course, was an attorney to many of the town's biggest stars at the time. So such a childhood, one might think, would potentially presage a legal career for someone like yourself. But I believe you said in other interviews that a law career wasn't something on your mind at that time, correct? What, um, what perhaps did you think uh, your professional path might look like? Well, growing up in the 50s and 60s in Los Angeles, um, I was aware that my father was an attorney. I knew he was a tax attorney. When I told my friends that, most people thought I'd said taxidermist, and I really didn't know the difference. He didn't talk much about his work. He was a, a quiet and fairly introspective man. So other than knowing that he did something fairly complicated, and my impression was he did it quite well, I really had no idea what my father did. And I'm sorry to say my knowledge of tax law today is uh, not much greater than it was when I was growing up. Um, I, I'm not sure I had any professional aspirations as a, a child. I think I thought I would um, marry well and live the life of a dilettante. And by that measure, I have failed miserably. So um, I know it's not very inspiring, uh, but uh, uh, I can't really say I gave a huge amount of thought to what I would do professionally uh, growing up, even though my mother was a journalist and had had a radio show when I was growing up, but she stopped working professionally around the time that my brother and I were in junior high and then was very active in 
civic organizations and in the uh, as a founding member of the Los Angeles County Art Museum Docent Council. And I thought she had a pretty good life. So I would say it wasn't until I got to college that I even started thinking about what I might do professionally. At college, at Wellesley, you studied Italian as, as your major. I'd be curious to know what, what led you to... Uh, well, why? To yes, well, fair question. <laughs> um, I have been an opera buff from an early age, very early age, about, about junior high. And um, so I started taking Italian actually at, a, at UCLA my last year in, in high school. And then I decided that I would major in something that would allow me to study music and literature and art and history and just do it in another language. I just thought well, that sure. would be more interesting. And sometimes people have asked uh, whether I wished I had majored in political science or something like that as a uh, preparation for law school. And I say no. I think you should get a broad liberal arts degree in something that interests you and major in something that requires you to write. And the last couple of years of my time at Wellesley, uh, both living abroad and here, uh, basically I mostly wrote. And I think learning to write clearly and cogently in any language is the best preparation for law school. So I don't regret the Italian uh, major at all. I really didn't think about law school until my father suggested it. I think going into my senior year, my brother was already in law school, and I said I had thought about it, and he said I think you'd enjoy it. And that was the full extent of my discussion about law school. So I really went, still having very little idea uh, what lawyers did. Did you, in fact, enjoy it? You came back here to Los Angeles to I, I, go to, yes, to USC. Um, I had no intention of spending another winter in the East. In fact, I realized when I was applying at the beginning of my senior year, I had spent two years at Wellesley and one in Italy. And uh, if I went to law school in the East, I would be contemplating spending another total of another four winters in the East, and that wasn't going to happen. In fact, I didn't even want to go to Northern California because I thought it would be too cold. So I was uh, determined to come back here for law school, and I did enjoy law school. I, I think I was one of those uh, students who enjoyed the academic aspect of law school. Some people couldn't wait to get out and start practicing. I had very little understanding of what practicing law meant, and I enjoyed the, the intellectual rigor of law school. It's probably right. one of the reasons I wanted to go on and clerk. Right. Yeah, and you clerked on the, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge John Minor Wisdom, which just... As an aside, that's got to be one of the more remarkable appellations for a jurist alongside the likes of, of Learned Hand and, and such. Yes. Um, well, and he was one of the leading lights of the 20th century, of 20th century federal jurisprudence. Um, books have been written about him. Uh, I was his first female clerk, or first girl clerk, as he liked to say. And it was an enormous uh, honor uh, to uh, work for him, to be given uh, that job offer, and then to have a marvelous year working with just such an extraordinary, extraordinary jurist. He has often been credited as really being the intellectual author of affirmative action. He was among the very courageous Fifth Circuit judges who uh, integrated uh, the schools of the South during a period when there was enormous popular resistance to that. And as I say, many books have been written about him, but he was a in addition to being a, a superb jurist, he was also a wonderful human being and everyone who clerked for him. And there is a whole um, sort of fraternity of uh, wisdom clerks uh, consider ourselves enormously blessed and privileged to have had that experience. Sounds like a tremendous person to have, to have learned under. After that, you, you served as a counsel to the subcommittee on the U.S. Constitution and the Senate Judiciary Committee 
which has like a, yes. a fascinating uh, I had been encouraged to um, go to Washington, see if I could get a job on the Hill, uh, which I was able to do. And uh, the subcommittee, which I signed on to, was actually chaired by Senator Tunney, who unfortunately was defeated shortly after I arrived on the scene, and I assumed I would be out of a job. But the incoming senator for that committee was Birch Bayh, and he quite generously asked me to stay. And so I did. And for my time on the Hill, I worked primarily on a bill called the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act. It was designed to give the Justice Department standing to sue prisons and uh, mental institutions and hospitals that were engaging in widespread deprivations of their residents' uh, constitutional and federal statutory rights. And during the period I was there, we held hearings. They ended up being televised and got the bill through subcommittee, and the bill eventually passed. So that was a, it was an interesting period to see how things on the Hill worked, both for better and for worse. But I had a great boss, and I had a great um, sort of portfolio. So it was a, it was a wonderful experience for me. Then after that time, you're back in, in Southern California in private practice, I believe, at O'Melveny. Well, I actually joined O'Melveny in Washington. Okay. Uh, they were uh, very, very kind. I had summer clerked in the office here, and uh, they had a small office in Washington, of which I'm now actually one of the founding members because we were quite small then. It's much, much larger now. And uh, they were kind enough to say, you can go back to L.A. anytime. And um, I wanted to stay in Washington a little bit longer, but I knew I wanted to come back to Los Angeles eventually. And so they were kind enough to allow me to work in the Washington office, which I did for another year or so before coming back to Los Angeles. And I guess I was here about another four years uh, working in Los Angeles before going to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what inspired your move from, from private practice into public service as a, a prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Los Angeles. Well, it was somewhat serendipitous. Um, I can't say that I found private practice enormously rewarding, though I did get from my years there some of my finest friendships and and um, having as a mentor uh, a lawyer named Jim Colbert, who has the uh, distinction of being Stephen Colbert's oldest brother. Uh, working with Jim was an experience that every associate should have, working with somebody who was brilliant and an incredibly skilled lawyer and a wonderful human being. Uh, he really set the model for how to how to do civil litigation in a way that may crush your opponent, but do so politely and civilly. And uh, he, that that was really the highlight of my years at O'Melveny. But uh, the firm had a uh, had organized a, a trial advocacy program, uh, partially through the firm and through NIDA, the National Institute of Trial Advocacy. And all of the sort of associates, I think, were participating in it. I don't believe it was anything you volunteered for. And it, it was one of these, you know, courses where we were given given exercises and you had to do an opening and a closing and eventually put on a trial and all that. And uh, so I participated in it, as I say, not as a volunteer, but I think we were just expected to do it. And the head of the program at some point came to me and said, um, what are you doing here? You should be trying cases in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Yeah. And I said, really? And I had a, a former boyfriend who was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I knew he liked it very much, and I talked to him a little bit about it. And I didn't really see myself in the long term staying in private practice, and so uh, I took advantage of that opportunity. 
But, you know, if, if they hadn't had that trial advocacy program and if the head of it hadn't come up and said that to me, it might not have happened. Certainly it was good to have serendipity on one side. How did you enjoy your time in that office? Oh, I think most people will tell you it was the best job they ever had. Um, in fact, when I became the U.S. attorney years later, and uh, Rob Bonner, a former U.S. attorney, uh, actually a former AUSA too, his wife, Kimmy, came up and said, uh, congratulations. And then she said, you know, Rob, didn't you always say that being U.S. attorney was the best job you ever had? And Rob, in his deep and plangent bass baritone voice, said, Actually, Kimmy, I think I said being an assistant U.S. attorney was the best job I ever had. <laughs> and I think uh, many of us feel that way. It's an enormous responsibility, um, but you learn to do everything. And you work with committed people. Um, the office was then run by the legendary, or the criminal division was run by the legendary Bob Brosio, later to become a very close personal friend. And uh, it was just a marvelous opportunity to learn an enormous amount about the craft of trying cases and doing appeals because it was completely vertical. You handled the case from indictment to trial, you know, to um, verdict, and if successful, to appeal. Uh, so that was a wonderful experience. And then in the last couple of years there, I was chief of appeals, um, for which I always had an affinity. And uh, I liked that because everybody in the office came through me. Every single brief that was filed in the Ninth Circuit um, in the criminal division came through me. So I got to deal with everyone in the office and, um, you know, make sure that the product we were producing to the Ninth Circuit was um, up to snuff or at least up to my standards. Uh, so that was a wonderful experience. Um, then your next step is your first uh, on, on the bench. You're appointed to the municipal bench and then eventually elevated to the Superior Court. Could you tell me about your, your first experiences as a judge, and whether or not your time then, if you have any lessons that you, you learned um, or things that you recall uh, now in, in your, your appellate jurist role? Um, well, I, like I think like most judges, I look back fondly on my first experiences as a municipal court judge. We have unification now, uh, but we didn't then, and I think it was actually terrific to be able to go in your first assignment to a full court. You were trying cases, but there were... Uh, misdemeanors. Um, you couldn't do too much damage, and there was, of course, appellate review. Um, so I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, you're a little concerned going from the federal bench to the state bench. You know, the, the code sections will be different, and will you know what you're doing, and all that. But um, I quickly realized that I had a lot more experience than many of the lawyers appearing before me in those misdemeanor cases. And uh, I started out in Metro doing traffic and DUIs like everyone else and then went out to San Fernando and Van Nuys. And I was only on the media court, I think, a couple of years before I was elevated to the Superior Court. So that was a, a nice period of time. Uh, and then on the Superior Court, I sat downtown doing felonies. And uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, you know, In terms of lessons learned, I would say don't skip lunch because it makes you cranky. <laughs> you should never act on being cranky. Um, you know, you, you had to make some adjustments for state court coming from federal court. It is more informal. Uh, certainly people expect to break at a certain time in a way that just doesn't obtain in federal court, but you, you learn that. Uh, but, but overall, I thought it was a very satisfying experience. And, and, and you learned a lot when I went back to the U.S. Attorney's Office as the U.S. Attorney. I had a new perspective on how judges see lawyers, and I tried to share that perspective with assistant U.S. attorneys as much as I could. 
Sure. Be able to see the perspective from the other side of the, the chessboard. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I remember coming back to a criminal division meeting in the U.S. Attorney's Office and someone was making fun of some judge who was, shall we say, nodding off on the federal bench. And I, I got up and I said, you know, now that I've seen it from the other side of the world, let me tell you, you people are not that amusing. <laughs> Frequently, staying awake is, is a challenge uh, because you're quite boring sometimes. So I had a different perspective. And, and I also, I think the real perspective you get once you're on the judge's side of the well is just how important attorney credibility is. You quickly sized people up. You learned which, um, in the state system, which deputy DA was reasonable, which one would push too hard or make arguments that, that really ought not to be made, uh, which public defenders were, you know, fought vigorously for their clients but were realistic in their plea negotiations. And you were sizing up people constantly. And that's what I told the assistant U.S. attorneys when I got back there, is that your credibility is on the line every time you get up and open your mouth. Now, your next step, as we foreshadowed a bit, is as the U.S. attorney for the Central District, of course, a very prominent and esteemed position, but certainly one that's entrusted with a tremendous and daunting amount of responsibility. I'd be curious to know what um, what goes through someone's head when they when they assume that mantle and, and carry on as the, the chief prosecutor for such a a massive district like this one? Well, the first thing I thought of was, what is my front office going to look like? Uh, and I suspect that's what any U.S. attorney is thinking. And um, I brought back my good friend and, and former uh, person of seniority in the office, Rick Druyan, who is you know, one of the most well-respected lawyers, particularly in public service in all of California. He's since went on to serve in high positions well, in the Christopher Commission, but then he headed the Rampart um, Commission, and he's now uh, still overseeing the implementation of the consent decree with the Sheriff's Department. And Rick and I are close friends. We also happen to be neighbors. Uh, and it was clear that that was the only person I wanted heading the criminal division. So if he was willing to leave his lucrative partnership at Skadden Arps and come back and work with me, I knew that we would be okay. And I also brought back Steve Zipperstein, who had been in, on a detailed Department of Justice to be my chief assistant. And later, when Steve left um, to uh, go back into the world of private industry in order to support his uh, three daughters, uh, Rick became chief assistant, and I brought in Dave Shepper as chief of criminal. And again, I had no question that the office would be in good hands. And we had uh, Lee Weidman in the civil division, who um, had been a sort of a a rock in that division for many, many years. And Ed Robbins in the tax division, uh, and as Rick used to say, somewhat to our embarrassment, although my father was a prominent tax lawyer, I'm still not clear to this day everything that Ed did. But um, it's very important that you have faith in your supervisors. Uh, and I certainly had faith in my front office. And then we sat down and you know sort of set priorities for going forward. Uh, which included, obviously, selecting the chiefs of the various divisions, sometimes making changes, sometimes not. And uh, at any given time, we probably had 20 um, high-priority prosecutions that I would be following more closely than I could obviously follow the hundreds of other cases that were brought every year. And uh, Rick Road heard on those prosecutors, and I think that made a big difference in making sure that the cases got investigated, got indicted, got tried, 
uh, because, you know, without that kind of pressure, things can languish. That appointment at that time was tendered by President Bill Clinton, a Democrat like yourself, but in the course of your career, you've been appointed or elevated by mostly Republican executives, including Governor Schwarzenegger and Duke Maijin and, and Wilson. Um, I'd be curious to know if what uh, what you think makes it so you're able to encourage and attract support from folks with different political ideologies than yourself. Well, I guess it's because I stand for nothing, <laughs> as one friend has suggested. But um, again, I think timing played a role. Uh, my first judicial appointment was by Governor Duke Majin toward the end of his um, final term. And uh, I remember being interviewed by his appointment secretary, Terry Flanagan, and he said to me, well, you know, you're a Democrat, and generally the governor appoints people from his own party. And I said, well, he, I figure he's got to appoint a few people from the other party, and I'm probably as inoffensive as he's going to find. I'd been a federal prosecutor for eight years. I don't think the governor thought I was going to be soft on crime. And so I was lucky enough to get that appointment. Then, of course, once you're on the bench, when it comes time for elevation, there are reviews of your performance. So Governor Wilson wasn't exactly, you know, flying blind uh, when he looked at me. And if you've been appointed by one Republican and you've not disgraced that governor, the next Republican governor is probably more likely to look favorably on you. And then since I was a Democrat um, and had not never been anything but, uh, I was in contention, you know, for the position as U.S. attorney. And with Senator Feinstein's support, that came about. And then I think any time you are the U.S. attorney, uh, particularly if it's the president who uh, made you, uh, you know, not appointed you, uh, nominated you, you're probably considered at least in contention for a district court um, judgeship. And fortunately, uh, President Clinton was still in office then, and um, that happened. And then by the time I was interested in the appellate bench here, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was was uh, certainly not. Um, you know, particularly ideological. Sure. I don't. I don't have the statistics, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, if he appointed more Democrats as a Republican than than most governors have appointed people of the other party. I don't know that for a fact, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, kind of my sense when I put my name in was that he and his appointment secretary didn't actually care too much about what your political affiliation was, which was, again, serendipitous, but very fortunate for me. Sure. And refreshing to hear, especially in the particular political <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Increasingly rare, perhaps. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, then we could talk about that move back to back to the bench. You, you're prosecuting uh, cases and leading prosecutions as the U.S. attorney, but did you still harbor some desire to, to return as a jurist, which, as you say, you did in, in 1998 onto the, the federal district court bench? You know, I did. And I'm not sure that I particularly uh, worked out the odds. If I had, I might not have, have become U.S. attorney. But I think I viewed the opportunity to become the U.S. attorney as unique and one that I should simply take. I did it with the knowledge that if uh, President Clinton won a second term, I would be at least in contention for a district uh, court judgeship, and I had enjoyed being a judge in the state court, and I thought I would enjoy it again. So that was certainly my fondest hope. There were no guarantees it would come to fruition, but that that's what I hoped for. And I was just lucky that it worked out that way. And then after eight years on the federal district court bench, you assumed the, the current role that 
um, you feel the, that of appellate justice for the state of California. I believe you, you've noted in previous interviews a, a particular penchant for appellate practice and appellate law and appellate courts. What um, about that milieu do you prefer um, as compared to, to trial courts? I would say it's the fact that it's all law all the time. Sure. And I like that. Um, I like the intellectual aspects of the law. There is um, little or no case management here, thanks to our competent clerks. We don't we don't really have to deal too much. You know, the cases come in, they're fully briefed, we get the records, we sit down, we plow through them, we crank out justice like little meat pies. Uh and uh there's no, you know, babysitting the lawyers. They, we don't deal, we, we obviously have hot writs and things that come up that require us to drop what we're doing and turn our attention to something like that. But we're not constantly dealing with the sort of nitty gritty bickering that goes on at the trial level and that I'm not sure any judge really likes. I, I do know there are judges who would hate this job. They consider it too isolating. They, they, want to be surrounded by people all day and that and that does have an energizing effect there's no no question about it but i've already done that and i don't think i i really have no desire to pick another jury or or sit through another trial i mean trials can be interesting but but sometimes you feel kind of like the secret service agent you know long stretches of boredom interspersed with moments of panic um so for me I enjoy the sort of the pure law, if not pure, almost pure, uh, law aspects of appellate work. I just find it more interesting and um, more stimulating. Okay, maybe as between federal and state courts, you spent a good bit of time in both contexts. You mentioned earlier some difference in, in formality. Are there other principal differences in terms of the practice in those courts, either by attorneys or, or judges? Well, I've I've now had, I think, the dubious distinction of having sat permanently or on assignment on every state and federal trial and appellate bench in California, because I've sat on the Ninth Circuit and I've sat on the California Supreme Court. I would say at the trial level, the principal difference between the federal and state courts is that the state courts really have to do a volume business. I mean, they are doing most of the business, and that affects how much time you can put into things. Uh, at the criminal level, it, it means that there's a lot less paper, uh, filed, which I think is a disadvantage. Uh, one of the adjustments you have to make going from federal court to state court is, you know, prosecutor would get up and make a motion or defense would make a motion and you'd say, well, you're gonna file something? Nope. Nope, that's it. You know? Oh, well, alright. Uh, and that's quite a bit different from federal court. I, I prefer uh, you know, maybe it's the luxury of having things uh, fully briefed. Uh, yes, yes, there's also a, a greater informality in state court, but I, you know, I, I did not find that particularly difficult to adjust to. Uh, nor did I find federal court particularly intimidating because that was the court in which I'd grown up, so I, I was very accustomed to that. Um, but at, but I do think the state and tri- the state and federal courts are probably more different at the trial level than they are at the appellate level. At the appellate level, we're all doing the same thing. The principal difference, of course, is that on the Ninth Circuit, you're sitting in different panels with different groups of people, and that makes for greater um, certainly greater variety of your colleagues. Here we sit uh, on a particular division, which is its own court. And in fact, when I applied to the Court of Appeal, I timed my application for a vacancy on Division Four, 
because I wanted to sit with Norm Epstein. And um, as I kid, it took um, three gubernatorial and two presidential appointments to achieve my goal of sitting with Norm Epstein, something I had <laughs> wanted to do since I was a baby judge and he was teaching at Judges College. But um, we sit obviously here with the same group of people. Now, if you are with a group of people whom you admire and respect and, and uh, with whom you have good collegial relationships, that's a joy. Uh, I think in the, if I were starting from scratch, I think there are advantages to sitting with different jurists and not kind of getting in a rut. But having said that, most of us who, who like the divisions uh, that we're on don't particularly want to change that. But in terms of the actual work, reading the briefs and oral argument and sharing your thoughts and drafting your opinions, uh, there's probably less difference at the appellate level between the federal and state courts. That was a, one other question that I did want to ask is um, jurists that you perhaps had looked up to. So now you mentioned Justice Epstein. What about uh, um, the jurisprudence that, uh, of his that you particularly admired or had looked up to when you were younger? You know, not really in the sense of uh, I didn't, first of all, I'm not a scholar of the law, so I haven't spent a huge amount of time, you know, reading this jurist's opinion and that jurist. We all have our favorite or least favorite Supreme Court justices based on their opinions, but I will not share that publicly. Um, but I would say certainly Judge Wisdom, the way he operated, uh, that was that was influential. And uh, I just knew Justice Epstein to be a, a, a brilliant jurist and a clear thinker. Probably not until I worked with him did I really appreciate what a what a stellar human being he was. And then I'm very fortunate. My colleagues, Tom Wilhite from the AG's office, whom I had known somewhat when I was on the Superior Court. And then uh, this past year, I was joined on my court by my former colleague on the District Court, the former Chief Judge of the U.S. District Court, Audrey Collins. And um, I remember literally shrieking into the telephone when she called me, and I was uh, pulling onto a freeway uh, on ramp when she called to say that A, she'd been appointed, and B, she'd been appointed to this division. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it, really, if you have a group of colleagues like that, uh, you're very, very fortunate. Sure. Okay, so you've been uh, on that post now for several years as an appellate state justice, so let's go ahead and move into chatting about some of the appellate best practices, things you've seen from attorneys, things you might want to see more from the appellate counselors that appear before you. Maybe let's start at the beginning of the life cycle of an appeal when attorneys are are looking for good cases to appeal or deciding whether or not to um, appeal in the first decision, that trial that went against them. Uh, I I think I've heard from attorneys that there can be some difference of opinion uh, in terms of what makes the best appeal. Say it seems to conflict with, with precedent or it uh, alternatively just works grave injustice. Obviously, the the two are probably most persuasive when they appear together. But between those two, would you counsel attorneys to be more focused on one over the other in terms of selecting a, a case to bring? Well, I confess, I've never really been in the situation of of uh, literally deciding should. Well, I, I have as you as attorney, I guess. But most of my work hasn't been as an appellate practitioner. Mm-hmm. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, we thought long and hard uh, before taking appeals in those rare instances where we could appeal. Obviously, if the verdict went for the defense in a criminal case, that was the end of it. But if it were motions, uh, things that were appealable, and, and in fact, to backtrack a little, uh, one of the main things we did when I was U.S. Attorney was take uh, up eventually to the Supreme Court a case involving uh, charges of selective prosecution. I, I was convinced we could win that case. 
having lost in the Ninth Circuit, and I spent a fair amount of time persuading the Solicitor General to seek cert in the case. And uh, frankly, I would have been happy to argue the case. Uh, but any time you are a government agency deciding whether to take something up, uh, you, you had better you'd better have everything possible on your side. In the more generic sense, uh, you know, the average appeal. Uh, I would have to say that certainly precedent is the most important thing uh, because, as one of my colleagues says, every once in a while we get to do justice, but for the rest of the time we just apply the law. I mean, the legislature may have enacted statutes that we disagree with. We think they're ill-conceived. Uh, we wouldn't have voted for them had we been a part of that branch of government. But as jurists, we don't hesitate to enforce the terms of those statutes. So we don't first say to ourselves, is this a good statute? Is, is it a result we particularly like? Um, the, the unfairness comes in more in a case where obviously the law isn't clear and you're asked, for example, to interpret a statute and the language of the statute is before you, but the implications of it may not be clear and needless to say, the fewer lawyers we have serving in the legislature, I think the, the more poorly drafted our statutes are, uh, but some case that is not obviously decided by precedent, then you start looking at what are the implications of construing the statute in this way, and would that work a grave injustice? Uh, and that's when certainly being able to point out to the court that interpretation A would work a grave injustice and interpretation B would not is is going to be a more persuasive argument. But if you've got precedent on your side, for heaven's sakes, you know, we're, we are bound by oath to follow that. Okay. Well, then in, in presenting arguments in, in written form and in, in submitted briefs, uh, certainly you read a lot of those filings. What, uh, in your opinion, do some of the strongest ones share and what, what sort of things might you prefer to see less of in, in filed briefs? Well, probably the, if I had to pick three things, I would say organization, clarity, and concision are what we long for in briefs and only occasionally get. Um, you know, we obviously we read hundreds, thousands of briefs and plow through hundreds of thousands of pages of record. So the clearer you could make your argument, the better, and the more organized you could make it, the better. And while concision, you know, obviously it's an advantage to us because we have limited time. But at the end of the day, it's an advantage to a lawyer too because given that we have a limited amount of time, you don't want us to get lost in the weeds when um, what you really want is for us to focus in on your strongest arguments and rule in your favor. Um, you know, I, I understand that it takes longer to write a shorter, more concise, and better organized brief, but if you have the resources to do so, uh, I would certainly counsel that. I also think that the introduction is terribly important. I know very experienced lawyers working in firms full of brilliant young associates who say no matter how much of the brief is the associate's work, I write the beginning and I write the end mm -hmm. because that's the first thing that a judge is going to see. And anybody, this was told to me actually when I was in law school by a litigator at Irel in Manila who said, when the judge reads your introduction, when the judge is finished, he or she should say, if that's true, you win. And that advice is true then, and I think it's true today. I don't think an, an introduction should be more than 
two pages long at the at the most, maybe a page and a half. It should distill the arguments, and the reader should finish that and say, if what you say is true, you win. Discussing uh, oral argument. Do some of those practices also apply there, concision and, and clarity and organization? And what um, what are some of the strongest arguments tend to, to, to uh, share that become before you? Yes. When I, I think of, you know, and really good appellate practice is both a skill and in some ways an art. And it's always a pleasure to have, you know, a Rex Heinke or somebody who's really experienced before you, uh, who you know knows the issues, knows the record upside down. And and is listening to the justices. If, if there's probably one flaw um, that we see more often than not, it's it's an advocate who's not really listening to our questions. We're not asking them to hear the sounds of our own voices. Uh, we're asking because we really have a concern or we want to know. We say, what are the implications of your argument in future cases? Or uh, does the record really uh, support your argument of X? And... Uh, too often, I think lawyers just think, well, this is the argument I'm making, and I'm going to make it, and I'm going to sit down. Mm-hmm. But um, listening to the judge's questions is probably the most important thing a lawyer can do. And when you see the good appellate advocates making an argument and then running into some resistance from us, uh, they know when to pivot to another argument. They know when to say, okay, I can see from the questions of at least two justices up there that I'm not going to make headway on this argument. Mm-hmm. So... Let, let me go to my next argument. You have to be nimble as well. And finally, I think you have to be prepared to tell the judges if we have misread the record in some way or if we have failed to appreciate some aspect of the record that you think is critical. Oral argument is your time to bring that to our attention. It's your time to talk to us, not at us. I imagine that there's uncertainty or disagreement among attorneys as to just how much room for persuasion there is at oral argument. I think some folks will think that appellate panels will have largely made up their mind or even written their opinions by the time the arguments are tendered. Uh, how how open do appellate panels tend to be at the time of oral argument, or are your decisions largely made, but maybe you have a couple of concerns that could sway you one way or the other? Well, to lawyers who who sometimes complain that the justices seem to have made up their mind before oral argument, I always respond, you know, we read your briefs. I mean, what fabulous, critical, uh, uh, persuasive argument did you not put in your brief and plan to spring on us at oral argument? I mean, this isn't uh, reading tea leaves or looking at an eight ball. You've filed a brief, and your arguments are supposedly in that brief, and you've cited to the record. So there really shouldn't be any surprises at oral argument. Uh, I wouldn't say that, uh, well, I would like to think that we are always open to uh, oral argument. There are obviously some cases that you go into oral argument feeling are, are closer or less close, and that's really a function of the record and the arguments. Uh, we have occasionally changed our mind. I personally would not waive oral argument because I think that's the opportunity for a lawyer to, frankly, test the court and make sure that the court has understood his or her arguments. Uh, you know, frankly, sometimes you get up there and you realize, yep, the court got my arguments and just did not find them persuasive, so I'm going to lose. But other times... Uh, you know, there will be some aspect of the case that was perhaps alluded to in the briefs, but maybe not emphasized, but that we now think is the big ticket item. And there's some aspect of the record that wasn't emphasized, but that the advocate can point to. Um, 
and and then there are cases where we walk in saying, well, this is what I think it's going to come out, but let's hear what they have to say. So um, I don't think there are any hard and fast rules, but certainly no advocate should be surprised that the court has an opinion on his or her case when the briefs have been filed and poured over and the record is, has been before the court. And if you do have a good argument, for God's sake, don't wait until oral argument to bring it up. You hear certainly a wide range of cases, criminal, civil. Are there any particular types of cases that you enjoy hearing the most? No, I can't. I, I can't say that um, that there are, but there are certain kinds of cases that you kind of um, dread only because they may be dry or technical. But and, you know, in my experience, almost any subject, once you delve deeply into it, can become interesting. Uh, but I wouldn't say there are any cases that I think, oh, whoopee, a CEQA case, you know, sure. or uh, something like that. It just it just kind of depends. And sometimes, you know, you know, there might even be some interesting evidentiary issue that pops up in a case, and you won't even know it's that interesting until you get involved in the case. Yeah, maybe broadening out just a bit, if you could impart some particular thought into the minds of an appellate counselor before he or she came into your courtroom um, regardless of what sort of um, area of law he or she is practicing, what uh, what would you most want that person to, to have in mind before they arrive in your courtroom? Well, I can tell you what I used to do as an appellate advocate, whether I was for the Ninth Circuit en banc or any other argument. Uh, I always had, a, in essence, a, a spiel prepared. I had whatever my arguments were. I had notes to myself. I didn't read, never read from a prepared text. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, but I knew, you know, the five points I wanted to make as I walked the court through each of my arguments. But I was also prepared to stop, answer any questions, pivot to the next argument if I needed to. So no one should come in without a set of prepared remarks. And again, not written down, but uh, at least prepared in his or her own mind. Um, and then I would say, come prepared to give your spiel, prepared to be interrupted, and prepared to listen to and answer the court's questions. Uh, that's your goal. And when you're listening to the question, you obviously have to be asking yourself, why does the judge want to know this? I know Justice Corrigan has a um, a pet peeve when she'll ask a question and a, and a lawyer will say, I'm, I'll get to that later. She feels like saying, no, no, I want to know now. And I'm and I'm one of the people deciding this case, so talk to me about it now. Uh, I think being attentive to the judge's questions and attentive to why they probably want to know that is something that the lawyers should be prepared to do. One other thing, uh, and this has come up, we will sometimes ask a question, and the lawyer will not know right then and there what the answer is. It, it's usually a question about the record. You know, was an objection made below or or some question. And sometimes you can literally see the thought process going through the lawyer's head. And I have seen cases where, just like a witness asked a question who doesn't know it and should simply say, I don't recall, you'll see the lawyer think, well, I think the better answer is X, and they'll give that answer. Never do that. Never, ever, ever do that. The best answer is, I'm not sure. I will check, and I can provide the court with that answer. Uh, now, sometimes you're pretty sure. And there's nothing wrong with saying, Your Honor, I'm almost certain, I believe it was, but I will check and I will confirm with the court. Uh, but never answer a question on the fly, because if you answer it one way, and we go back and check the record, which we will, 
And it's not true. You have just blown your credibility. You really don't want to do that. That seems like a, a unifying theme that you brought up a, a few times now from your experience on the benches. The judges will quickly be able to deduce uh, an attorney's credibility based on you know, the, the few simple acts that he or she may, may perform at, at trial or oral argument. Yep. Yes. Uh, and, and obviously, we're familiar with the record. So when a lawyer gets up and he starts, he or she starts to make an argument, and we say, well, wait a minute, doesn't the record reflect A, B, C, D, and E? We expect them to acknowledge that. Um, if they don't, I mean, I've occasionally had a case where, where some lawyer just thinks that stonewalling is a persuasive tactic, and it's really not. In the end, you are trying to persuade us, uh, not not browbeat us. Just one, one last one for you. I'd be curious to know to the extent um, attorney practice or appellate practice in your uh, time on the bench has, has changed since you were appointed, either for better or for, for worse. No, I don't think it has. Um, no, I, I think coming into this court, people are quite well behaved. Uh, there is a court reporter, so that um, probably helps. I mean, there's a recording of the argument. Uh, but I think the the whole atmosphere of our court Frankly, the cabaret lighting in the courtroom, um, which I think is a little bit of a disservice to the lawyers. I think we should at least give them decent reading lights. Uh, but everything about the courtroom, I think, uh, encourages a respectful, uh, serious discussion. And uh, it's I, I really can't think of a, a case where we've had a lawyer or even a pro se litigant uh not behave in accordance with what would be expected. I think some trial judges will tell you, in the absence of court reporters, that's not necessarily the case anymore. But it's it's not a problem on the Court of Appeal. Uh, so it might be in the trial court that there has been a greater change in how lawyers behave. But in the, oh, I don't know, let me see, well, 35 or so years, however long I've been doing this, um, I, I have not... I certainly haven't seen a deterioration, um, and so I, so I think it's been about the same. Sure. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, certainly good to know. I can and let you get back to to hearing that high quality advocacy. Thank you so much for for joining the podcast, Justice Nora Manella of the Second Appellate District. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Once again, that was Nora Manella, justice in the California Court of Appeals, Second Appellate District. We'll move now to my conversation with Mr. Mark Haddad from Sidley Austin. Very happy to be joined now by Mark Haddad, a partner with Sidley Austin, who leads their Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Division in the Los Angeles office and also co heads their global appellate practice. Mr. Haddad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You've prepared and, and argued cases before the United States Supreme Court, and it's that topic that we'll discuss this morning. Um, but before we get into that specifically, I'd like to touch on some time that you've spent in the Supreme Court before arguing or preparing any cases for it, and that's when you, you spent time as a clerk for Justice William Brennan, um, obviously a, a tremendously influential jurist from the, the past century um, who's left his mark um, on many areas of constitutional doctrine. Um, and society sort of in general. I'd love to hear a bit about your experience with Justice Brennan and, um, and, and what uh, he, he was like. Justice Brennan was a absolutely marvelous individual. Um, he knew uh, 
and you know, was aware of his extraordinary place in history. Um, you know, by the time I clerked for him, he'd been on the bench, I think, almost 30 years or so. So he, he knew, uh, in some sense, what his legacy would be. But as an individual, he was just absolutely charming, uh, very funny, very full, uh, sort of full of life. Um, and people just took to him. Uh, and of course, his clerks uh, were absolutely devoted to him. Uh, but he made, you know, coming to work every day just an absolute pleasure. And uh, so, you know, having a chance to be his law clerk was an incredible experience. Um, and and then just being in that uh, that building, that environment, it's such an awe-inspiring uh, building and a, you know, and a place. Uh, I have to say that never got old either. Uh, it was a long year, kind of grueling in some aspects, but it was an extraordinary privilege. And, uh, you know, when you sort of thanked your stars for every morning. A portion of his reputation centers around the idea that he, he if, could effectively persuade other jurists on the bench to come around to his point of view, which tended to be further to the left than um, that held by many of the other jurists. Did you get any sense working with him how how would be able to to persuade folks in that manner? And is that the sort of thing that, that has served you in your advocacy career? You know, I didn't see it firsthand because uh, one of the special things I think about the court is that the justices do a lot of the critical work themselves and among themselves. Um, you know, when you visit the court uh, and are able to take a tour, um, you see the conference room uh, that's uh, adjacent to the chief justice's chambers where the justices meet to talk about the cases after the arguments. And the, to me anyway, the extraordinary thing about that room is that only the justices are in the room. Uh, when they sit and meet, the very heavy doors close and the nine of them are there sitting around a table looking at each other and they talk and they decide uh, how they're going to vote and announce their votes. Um, in that, uh, your justice may, you know, report to you afterward on, uh, certain aspects of the conference, but by and large, those discussions are closed to, uh, to the law clerks and everybody else, uh, you know, except for the results. Um, and, you know, just that said, Justice Brennan was very gregarious, very charming, very, you know, had a very direct, uh, and engaging and funny manner. So, um, and he would talk to other justices individually, uh, and again, I wouldn't be part of those conversations, but just from seeing the way he engaged with the clerks, the way he engaged with uh, other judges uh, whom he knew uh, uh, and who would come visit him, um, you know, for morning coffee or for lunch, um, he was charming and he was persuasive just as a personality. And I think uh, if I took anything away uh, from it, it's just that you know if you're if you're reasonable and you've thought through your views and you're direct and sincere and you listen as well as uh, you know express your thoughts, um, then uh, you know you're likely to get to a good place uh, in a conversation with someone else. Now moving on to to chatting a bit about what it's like to prepare and and argue a case before the 
the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's start at the beginning. How do you t- typically tend to find yourself on cases that will be considered by the high court? Um, have you worked on the appeal below, or do you sometimes join on after the cases petition for review at the, the high court? Uh, well, both uh, both happen, and um, I don't know that there's any one is more common than any other. Uh, because I'm at a, a large law firm, um, we do have... Uh, a number of cases that we handle at the Court of Appeals stage or the state uh, appellate or Supreme Court stage then become the subject of uh, petitions for cert. But uh, probably just as often we get involved in cases where, uh, you know, another uh, lawyer has handled the case up to that point and then we come in at the Supreme Court stage. In either circumstance, whether you've handled the appeal below or, or taken it up afterwards, are there, there are certain qualities that you particularly are looking for when you decide either in the one circumstance to, to bring an appeal or to take on one? Yeah, well, the, the special circumstances, I think, arise when you're deciding whether to petition the court, uh, because it is very difficult to uh, get the court to grant cert. And so uh, you always want to be very clear with clients about whether they have a case that realistically has a chance to be considered. And so, you know, what matters at the Supreme Court stage in terms of getting the court to hear the case is less whether the case was wrongly decided, although that, that is an important factor, but it's uh, the, the, the far more important factor is whether the case meets the criteria the court has identified for uh, cases that it will hear. And, and of those criteria, the most important is whether the lower courts are divided um, on the issue that you want the Supreme Court to hear. So unless you can show that um, the, uh, the judges in your case have applied a rule uh, that's different than the rule that would have been applied uh, had your case arisen in some different uh, court in a different part of the country, um, it's going to be exceptionally hard to get the Supreme Court interested. Um, the other uh, the other situation where the court will typically get involved is if the lower courts have held um, that uh, some state or federal law is unconstitutional. And if, that's, if they've done that, then the court will be interested to review that as well if it's a, you know, if it's a novel uh, ruling. But generally, a circuit split is the necessary, but even then not sufficient uh, 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 criterion for review. And so, you know, that may or may not be uh, present in a given case. And if it's not there, uh, then you really have to have a a heart-to-heart conversation with the client about whether it's worth um, taking the case up to the court, uh, even on the petition stage. Could you take me a bit further into the, the psychology of a partitioner? You're facing those long odds. Is it is it daunting? Is it worrisome to know that the, the amount of effort that you have to put in could go for not? Have you had petitions that have uh, been denied review? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, anybody who has practiced before the court, uh, you know, at all is likely had a petition denied. That's what happens, you know, most all the time. Uh, it's funny. I mean, every time I filed a petition, you know, by the time I'm done with it, I think, oh, you know, of course, I've got a grand cert on this. You know, this case is cert worthy. But, you know, time after time, the petitions get denied. So it's, it, um, it's very, uh, if from, if you look at it in those terms, it, you know, it certainly is, uh, frustrating because in all likelihood the petition's denied and it's denied without an explanation. So you don't know how close you got. 
or necessarily what the reasons were. Um, but you know, for a, for a case to be granted, uh, the stars have to align. You know, you need that circuit split. You need an issue that uh, comes up frequently. Because even if there's a split, but the split is with a case that's 20 years old, and there aren't really a lot of cases in that area, the court's going to say, well, yeah, there's a split, but, you know, is this really important enough? You know, we'll wait uh, another time to decide. You know, if this issue keeps coming up, maybe we'll decide we need to decide it. Um, So, you know, there are those kind of factors uh, that cut against review. And then there's also the question of even if you have a really important legal issue embedded in your case, if the facts of your case aren't really what um, the court tends to think of as a good vehicle for the court to decide the issue, whether because your facts are idiosyncratic or whether because the opinion you're seeking review of um, just doesn't do a very good job at all of discussing the issue, um, then the court may think, oh, we'll wait for a different case that, that will, you know, present the issues to us uh, in a way that will allow us to make the best uh, decision possible uh, on this issue. Certainly a lot going into it. And one particular element framing the argument in, in those preliminary briefs, either as the petitioner or the respondent, could you take me through that, say, if you're the respondent, your side has prevailed at the lower court. Are you essentially reiterating the arguments that did prevail there? Um, and on the other side, if you're the petitioner, um, obviously you have to do something a bit different. Are you, you strengthening the arguments or conceiving new ones um, when you're petitioning for review? Sure. Well, let's start with the petitioner. So the petitioner won't um, come up with new legal arguments because you really need to confine yourself to what was argued and decided below. But um, you will look at those issues differently. I mean, the first thing you'll do is you'll look and see, uh, you know, what would other circuit courts uh, or state Supreme Courts, you know, what, what would they have done with this issue? Would they have decided it differently? Can I show a clean uh, split of authority such that I could say, uh, for example, you know, had my case arisen in the Third Circuit or the Fifth Circuit or the Seventh Circuit instead of wherever it arose, say the Ninth Circuit, the result would have been different. Look at these other cases and you will see they disagree with the Ninth Circuit rule. Well, when you're in the Ninth Circuit, um, you're not likely to spend as much time in your brief saying, well, here's what the Third Circuit would do or the Fifth or the Seventh. Uh, because the Ninth Circuit is going to do, and the panel in the Ninth Circuit will be bound by what prior panels in the Ninth Circuit have done. So, you know, you may, and I think it's a good practice, uh, to point to the other circuits in the when you're in the Court of Appeals, but it's much less of a focus of your brief. And uh, when you get to the Supreme Court cert petition stage, you are hugely focused on, you know, what do other courts around the country do with this legal issue? The other thing, and this is really often quite new, is you you really go into the public policy implications for the rule of law. You know what, you know what is the impact on the rest of the country um, and the similarly situated entities or individuals around the country? of having, you know, rule A versus rule B as the rule of law for this issue. And you really want to convey to the justices, uh, 
you know, this is important that we that you, the court, sort this out. You know, however you come down with the rule in the circuit I've been in or the rule in these other circuits, it matters. And uh, you know, a third thing you do, which you may or may not have done at the court of appeal stage, is you enlist amicus support if at all possible. You uh, go to organizations that have an interest in your uh, area that you happen to be in, and you let them know about your uh, petition, and you urge them to weigh in, because they often can develop uh, the importance, the national importance of the issue um, uh, with more uh, data and more perspective than you as the representative of a single individual or a single entity, you know, are in a position to do. So in that respect, the petition is different because the ultimate, you know, the upshot of a petition is not necessarily to say the decision below is wrong, although you always point that out, but is to say the case is important and meets your criteria, Supreme Court, for hearing it. And so you can see then, faced with a petition that does those things, the respondent's brief uh, in opposition to the petition will be different than it was uh, below because there, uh, the only thing the respondent really had to worry about was convincing the court to uphold the lower court decision. Here, um, the respondent in the Supreme Court has got to also uh, explain why there isn't really a circuit split, you know, why these other courts were faced, for example, with different fact patterns and that their decisions should be viewed as limited to those facts that were in front of them, that they haven't really created a split. Uh, and very often, you know, to have a, a clear split is unusual. So there are often very important arguments a, a respondent can make to, um, uh, you know, to undercut the petitioner's claim that there's a split of authority. And then, uh, you know, the respondent will often feel that the petitioner's presentation of the importance of the issue is overstated and that, you know, the petitioner is saying the, you know, the sky is falling and in reality the sky is perfectly intact and <laughs> will be there tomorrow just as it was uh, yesterday and today. And so uh, the respondent makes those points. And again, those wouldn't have been made in, in the Court of Appeals. To tease out one of those points a little bit, you mentioned the, the growing prevalence of public policy arguments on the petitioner side is that, um, I guess, how, how recent is that? What do you think might explain that as the sort of thing that is encouraged by courts and that's why it's used more? Why do you think that's a more prevalent tool? You know, it is. it has been uh, a, a trend over the last 20 or 25 years, really, um, uh, to file amicus briefs. And I, I think... Um, you know, folks that watch the Supreme Court and and see how the Supreme Court decides cases, uh, and many of whom have had experience as law clerks at the Supreme Court, um, they see the importance and the influence of amicus briefs, and so um, they realize that those briefs can be very helpful to the justices. And some of the justices, in interviews and other forum, have have agreed that. Um, you know, a, a good, well-formulated amicus brief is very valuable to them, and particularly at the cert petition stage, because at the cert petition stage, you know, it's one of the harder things for the justices to assess is how important is this issue. And so when you have uh, an organization come in and, you know, step back from the particular facts of the case and go beyond the record in that 
you know, particular case that was developed just on the parties in that case and, and say, well, look, here is a whole range of similar litigation throughout the country. And here's what's going on in that litigation. And here are the kinds of interests. And, you know, here's what the impact has been of other decisions. Um, and, you know, here are the real stakes uh, as we see them. Uh, you know, that gives the court a lot of context and background to help them figure out, you know, is this really a case that merits our attention? At this stage, there's obviously quite a bit going on and a lot of considerations and um, arguments to be made and, and nuance within different arguments. And often you're you're working on these appeals with a, a team of lawyers and perhaps teams from different firms, different groups of folks um, all collaborating together. Can it be difficult to end up producing one unified product to give to the court if people have slightly different views as to what the best arguments would be or how they could best be presented? You know, um, you would you would think that to be the case when you see all the names, but in practice, I haven't really found that it is that difficult. So, you know, certainly uh, it it can be, but almost always um, the clients understand that there needs to be one uh, firm, one lawyer ultimately in charge uh, to make the the decisions as to what uh, the the petition will say or what the brief will say, and um, you know, and, and appellate lawyers in general are really good. I think one of their skills is uh, listening to others, you know, hearing the different points of view and then uh, coming up with a recommendation that uh, is reasonable and, you know, makes the, puts the, you know, the client's interests in the best light. So as long as the client has identified who the responsible firm is, and the, and the Supreme Court facilitates this because as a, you know, by rule, one individual has to be designated the counsel of record, and it's only one. <laughs> you can't have, you know, three, uh, not every firm gets a counsel of record. So there is a person who's ultimately got responsibility for the case. And um, so, you know, typically it's not that much of an issue because people express their views. Um, and then the counsel of record uh, makes the call as to how any disagreements are resolved. Getting into preparation for oral arguments, maybe a logistical question first. How do you know or when in the stage do you know who will be the one who's, who's giving the oral argument? Is that something that happens early on? Usually it usually it's early on. I mean, usually you, you do know. Um, if it, it, it'll, it, you know, it'll either be the person who argued it in the court below uh, or if the person who argued in the court below or the client wants to make a change at the Supreme Court stage, then you know part of the process of making the change is making a change to someone else who will you know be the counsel of record and argue the case. Uh, you know it can get complicated. There are situations where the court uh, has two cert petitions from two different uh, petitioners that each are raising the same question, and the court will consolidate the case into one argument and tell those parties you you have to decide you know who's going to argue the case and those can get you know very difficult and sometimes those are actually decided by a coin flip uh, if you can believe it but uh so it's not always easy in the hard cases but in in the great run of cases uh it's usually pretty straightforward and you know at the outset who it's going to be Okay, then after that process and um, is complete and you, you know you'll be giving arguments before the court and your preparation begins, 
in earnest, how how similar or dissimilar is that process preparing an argument before um, SCOTUS as compared to, to other appellate panels? Are there particular thoughts or objectives that you have uh, in mind? Yes, it, it is a different process. Um, the oral argument at the Supreme Court is different than at the Court of Appeals. It, it lasts longer. You know, at the Court of Appeals, uh, you know, it's often 15 or, or 20 minutes. Uh, and even in those appellate courts where it's 30 minutes, the way it is at the Supreme Court, you know, at some state Supreme Courts, you get 30 minutes. Um, you don't, you, you're never before a bench as active as the U.S. Supreme Court. In um, particularly over the last 15 or so years at the Supreme Court, we've had uh, uh, justices who are very engaged, who love to ask questions, you know, who want to ask more questions than the time will permit each of them to ask. And so they're kind of jumping in on top of each other to ask questions. So you just don't see that in, in most all the panels that you're ever going to have in a, in a court of appeals. And what that means uh, for the advocate is you need to be able to answer these questions in one to two sentences, because that's pretty much all you're going to get before you'll get interrupted by another question. And so you need to know your case so thoroughly uh, and have uh, really thought through how you would want to answer a, a huge range of questions that eight or nine extremely bright individuals uh, who think about these issues all the time are going to come up with um, that the normal sort of preparation that you would do in the Court of Appeals just won't be enough. And so um, the preparation is fundamentally different. You spend more time getting ready. Uh, you do more moot courts. Uh, and you go into much more depth in your uh, reading and mastering of the of the uh, prior cases, particularly the Supreme Court's cases, uh, than you would uh, if you were in the Court of Appeals. Speaking of an, an active court and jurists being eager to jump in and, and ask questions, um, how much do you consider the particular personalities or inquiries or interests of particular jurists as you're preparing for the case? And also, do you tend to, to have a sense of which of the justices might be the ones that you're you most need to persuade if you say assume that a few are most likely going to side with you. Do you do you make some effort or um, specialize your your arguments or tailor them to the justice that you think might swing the case one way or the other? Uh, yes, uh, you do. I probably yes to all those questions. Um, so, um, you, you know, unlike. Um, well, it's different in a in a state uh, supreme court, uh, but let's just think about the you know the circuit courts. Um, and some of them are relatively small, but many of them, you know, you they're large enough that you really won't know who your panel is going to be until you know a week before argument or um, uh, you know shortly before argument. Uh, you know, from day one, you at the time you're writing your cert petition or responding to a, a cert petition, you're thinking about what argument is going to be persuasive to what justice. And the, you have such a track record of what each of these justices thinks that you have a lot to go on in preparing. Uh, uh, so you absolutely are thinking, all right, what are the kind of questions I'll hear from you know, Justice Kennedy, you know, what are the kind of questions I'm going to hear from the Chief Justice? 
Um, you know, what, you know, how would uh, Justice Kagan come at this or Justice Sotomayor come at this? You know, these justices uh, and other justices, um, really all of the justices except Justice Thomas, uh, enjoys asking questions and asks multiple questions in almost every argument. So you prepare not only for questions in the abstract from the court, but you are preparing for questions you are likely to get. And and you definitely think about justices who might be critical to swing the vote. Because in the difficult cases, the 5-4 cases, um, you know, it is, or, you know, in today's court, what would be a 5-3 case, um, you know, you depending on the issue, you can feel fairly confident in advance um, you know where the middle of the court might be and where that extra vote might have to come from beyond the votes that you feel you know somewhat confident going in you, you may likely get uh, and so you you definitely ask yourself all right what what's likely to be really on that justice's mind and what's the most convincing way I can respond to uh, to persuade them you say that the Supreme Court is unique in that uh, you, you know who will be hearing your appeal. You're handling a case this term, Jennings versus Rodriguez, which we won't get into in specifics, but that's not entirely true in this case, the the fact that you know who will be hearing it. Certainly the past several months, the makeup of the court has been a bit uncertain. Has it been a unique challenge? Has there been anything different in preparing for a court of eight jurists or potentially nine or you know who knows who that ninth might be? Um, what's that been like? Uh, well, yeah, I, I will put Jennings uh, to one side just because that is a uh, a case that's uh, pending. But in in general, um, you know, for anybody who's got any case pending before the court right now, um, it's very different than it was back when the justices when we had nine with Justice Scalia, and different than it will be whenever a, a replacement is finally uh, confirmed, um, because. Uh, you know, a 4-4 decision, uh, if that's what it ends up in and that's what's issued, that does affirm the judgment below. Um, so you still have to count to four votes if you're trying to overcome, uh, if you're trying to preserve the decision below, or you need to count to five votes if you're trying to, you know, reverse the decision below. So you're still doing a head count and asking yourself those questions about who, where are my votes coming from. Um, and, you know, and then the other issue is, I suppose, you know, we're seeing already this term, the courts issued some decisions with fairly narrow, uh, reasoning that have been unanimous. And so the courts, you know, being extremely cautious right now, it's taken very few cases and the cases it's taken, it's deciding very narrowly. So it's moving in kind of baby steps. And so you you know, as an advocate, you are thinking about that, you know, what are the implications for my case? The more you can make it um, a baby steps case and, you know, vindicate your client with, you know, by hitting a bunt single rather than a home run, you know, that's, you're very much thinking about that. Yeah, I think a, a case that will be featured on another segment of the show is the Salman versus the U.S. A securities fraud case from last week, which did come out on a, a fairly narrow um, holding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that you know, you know, you'll see. I think there have been you know several other cases. You could also 
talk about from that perspective. And and it's really, you know, it's uh, certainly reflective of uh, this unusual period in the court's history where it's having this prolonged um, time uh, in, uh, you know, without a deciding vote. This always seems, in speaking to attorneys, like a, a fairly kind of unknowable mystery, the extent to which at oral arguments there's room for persuasion in, in the court. Um, I think sometimes attorneys will think that if they go into oral argument or when they go into oral argument, the the panel there before has largely made up its mind. Do you think there is room for much persuasion before the U.S. Supreme Court? Is, it, uh, is that quantum any greater or smaller than in, in other appellate panels? I think it's slightly greater at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, because the justices don't uh, get together before the argument to talk about the case. Um, between the time they grant cert and the, and the time they hear the case, you know, they don't they, they, they work individually with their law clerks to uh, reach uh, a tentative view in their own minds. But they don't work with each other. And that's fundamentally different than uh, the way uh, a lot of the courts of appeals work. It's it's a hundred percent different than the way the California Supreme Court works. So you know, with the California Supreme Court, the justices have uh, met, uh, talked about, circulated a draft uh, uh, ruling. Um, you know, resolved uh, differences of view at least tentatively about you know, the way the case should come out, all of that happens before the oral argument. So in that court, oral argument, you know, chiefly serves to kind of refine uh, ways in which they might reach the result they've already tentatively decided to, to reach. But it doesn't, it's a very, very unusual case where it could flip a decision. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, you know, by and large, by the time of argument, most of the justices have made up their minds, but um, but not all of them all of the time. And I think oral argument can be, you know, a very productive time um, for uh, justices to see some of the weaknesses in, you know, one or the other side's case and to you know, it's an opportunity for the advocate to uh, provide, you know, additional uh, uh, support uh, for a justice who is looking to persuade uh, one of his or her colleagues on an issue later at the conference. Um, you know, it uh, uh, it can expose weaknesses that, you know, perhaps the briefs didn't do as good a job of exposing in one or the other side's case. Um, it's uh, so it's a it's a much more dynamic uh, and free flowing uh, debate that's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court than is typically going on in other courts, and I think as a result, there's more opportunity for impact uh, at that stage. When you're appearing before the court, when you go to Washington to the the country's court of last resort, you know, a body that has such historical prominence and play such an important role in the American story and uh, such a hollowed institution, you're appearing before um, justices that themselves take on sometimes sort of a mythic quality. Do you have to sort of set that aside mentally and, and focus on the fact that you're, you're there to do a job and it's not, 
and it's a central character too dissimilar from the job you do before other less hollowed panels? Um, or is there some value in, in keeping in mind uh, you know, the, the illustrious history of that, that judicial body so it inspires some, uh, some confidence and some inspiration in you when you're preparing those arguments or, or delivering them? Uh, well, if there's a way to forget that you're at the U.S. Supreme Court, I haven't <laughs> come upon it. <laughs> it's just too um, too present and too monumental to uh, you know to put out of mind. I mean, even uh, those who've argued you know you know dozens of cases, you know, the handful of, of uh, uh, lawyers who who've um, perhaps you know for long careers in the Solicitor General's office or uh, otherwise have, have appeared scores of times, you know, they have butterflies. It just, there's no way not to, um, uh, to get excited about being at the Supreme Court. Rex Lee, who was a, a Solicitor General and then argued many cases in private practice after that, said, uh, something to the effect of if you know if I ever didn't have butterflies I'd know it was time for me to stop arguing cases uh, and he was as relaxed and convincing an advocate as has ever appeared so um, you know I, it's it is wonderfully exhilarating and I think the what I try to do anyway is just to draw on that energy um, to be as present and as you know, in the moment as possible. And the energy that's in that courtroom at 10 o'clock in the morning when the court is in session and, uh, you know, there's uh, gaveled into order and uh, uh, the buzzer sounds and the curtains part and the justices sort of magically appear behind the three sets of curtains and take the bench uh, is one of the most dramatic moments, uh, not only that a lawyer would ever see, but I think that most of us would ever see. It's it's high uh, political constitutional theater. Uh, it's an amazing moment. And, you know, when you're in the courtroom arguing, you're, you know, you're, all of you is there. And uh, when you're done, you're kind of exhausted, but you're exhilarated and uh, you sort of can't wait to do it again. Can you take me into that that moment when you first step to the lectern and you you're about to deliver your arguments? What uh, what do you have in mind and what do you have in, in front of you? What do you have notes? Uh, your argument, um, the record. What um, what all is there? By the time you're at the lectern, um, I, at least what I have, what I think what most have, um, if you're the petitioner, so if you're speaking first, you have decided what your you know, your opening paragraph will be, um, not that you'll necessarily give it word for word, but you, you know, you basically have two or three sentences at least firmly in your mind as that you'll begin with. Usually you're interrupted within two or three sentences, but, um, actually there was an argument, uh, just a couple of weeks ago where the advocate, uh, from the solicitor general's office was able to go, uh, for, about two transcript pages without getting interrupted, which I haven't seen happen in many, many years. But so you need to be prepared to go a little longer. But for most, you know, for most, you've got that introduction, and then uh, you've got 
in mind three or four points that you you know you'll have on a page just to have in front of you as a crutch but by the time you're arguing you really don't need it you've got those points well in mind but those are the points you want to be sure come out at some point uh during your time and then what i like to have is sort of uh what i think of as a cheat sheet of key um uh, either statutes or uh record sites or you know, sometimes a, a key page of a, a case or two, things that might be difficult. You know, you might have 20 of these that you think there's a decent chance you might want to mention. You'll, in, you know, and you you may want to just have them on a page so that if in the moment they fly out of your mind, uh, you know, and you can't come up with, you know, 8 USC 1220B1C25, you know, ZZ or whatever, some, you know, crazy number, you at least know it's right there and you can be sure to give the court the accurate site. But beyond that, you really, you know, you don't have time to be flipping through notes or uh, looking down. It's, it's tough really to look down at the lectern. I mean, you want to make eye contact the whole way. You're getting quick questions. You're going to be able to answer them in a sentence or two. Uh, so, I mean, my eyes during an argument are on the judges. They're not in my notes. They're not at the briefs. And you don't really need that stuff by that point. Is that the, the main difference in arguing cases before um, the Supreme Court that you'll be fielding more questions more rapidly than in other panels? Are there any other particular differences or different strategies that you employ during the, the argument? Other than that, not really, uh, because the best practices there are the best practices anywhere. You know, you 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 have to answer the question first and then give the explanation if you if you want to qualify your answer, uh, you don't start with the qualification. You start with the answer, and then you give the qualification. That's best practices anywhere, but it's critical at the Supreme Court because they will get so frustrated with the lack of an answer, um, given how little time is available uh, to discuss the case from their point of view, that they'll just start jumping on you for not answering the question. <laughs> That's a terrible place to be in as an advocate. So, uh, but. No, the other ba the best principles are, you know, are the are the same. Um, I guess the one other difference I would say is that in some appellate courts, uh, not all of the panel may necessarily be as prepared as they might be, and so you you would need to be prepared to tell more of the factual story uh, to engage one of the panel members who, for whom this wasn't a primary case that he or she focused on. And so you're in a position to really teach the case a little bit to uh, one or more of the panelists. Whereas at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, there's there may be a key factual issue that needs to be surfaced. Uh, but, you know, those justices are prepared. They don't hear that many cases. <laughs> you know, they've, they've carefully thought about the ones they're going to hear. So uh, you are you know, you're only dealing with the toughest issues um, there, and you can presume that the court has a very firm grasp on, you know, the, the factual and legal background. You mentioned at the end of arguments, you're often exhausted. Do you also at, at that time have have any sense as to how effective you are if you persuaded the the, uh, the justices that you, you needed to persuade? Um, 
Uh, it depends. Some cases, yes. Uh, you know, some cases, um, the body language tells you a lot, and you feel like, yeah, I, you know, this is good. Um, but some cases, um, it's less clear. You know, if, if the questioning is both unexpected and not really on the points that you thought it would be, then you can emerge a little puzzled. You know, you might, if there's kind of a disconnect in that sense between the way the parties have been thinking about the case and the way the court's thinking about it, then those are the situations where you come out and say, I I don't know what they're going to do. But if they've asked the hard questions that you were expecting to to, to be asked, then I think very often you can say, well, these are the questions we got from these justices, and this was sort of the body language around it, and so we feel like, you know, we have a pretty good idea which direction the court's going to go. Maybe just one last one, tying back to your time as a clerk for Justice Brennan. Did you get then from from him or other justices a sense of what they feel are some of the more effective approaches that appellate counselors can take in at the Supreme Court? You know, two things leap to mind. I mean, one is um, the advocate who is uh, helpful to the court is, um, you know, is the one that a justice looks forward to hearing from. So, you know, I've always thought of an oral argument really at any level as the opportunity to have a conversation with the judge. Um, And to me, uh, I mean, it was a huge privilege clerking for Justice Brennan and being able to work up a case and then sit with him uh, as the law clerks would do and talk through the case and give the judge, give Justice Brennan in that case, my thoughts as to, you know, what I you know, what I saw in the case and, and what the issues were and, and how I thought it should come out. Well, this I've always thought of as kind of the next best thing. <laughs> Oral argument is the next best thing to being able to go in and talk to a justice and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking about the case. And, and so I think with that mindset, you're in a position to be as helpful to the court as possible. And, and then in, in that process, the single most important question, you know, once you think you know how the case should come out, or if you're a lawyer representing a client, once, you know, you know who your client is and what result they need, then you ask, well, what is the best argument on the other side? If I'm arguing this case for the other side, what is the absolute best argument I have? And the question then becomes, why is it that the other side should win? notwithstanding this very best point. And if you can answer that question, then you're ready for the oral argument. Um, so, you know, th- I guess those are those are the things that kind of were clear to me over the course of the clerkship, and really they're, they're still true uh, today. Um, you know, it, a final point, just thinking back um, on the clerkship was um, the ultimate, you know, futility sometimes uh, in of of argument um, 
whether in the briefs or at oral argument, you know, there's some cases are unwinnable. Um, and I, I remember a case, it was the court took it because of a circuit split. There was a lawyer for the taxpayer, it was a tax case. So the government's on one side, the taxpayer's on the other. The taxpayer's lawyer wrote one of the worst briefs we saw. Um, it was a disaster of a brief. Um, the lawyer had no idea how to write a brief. It was filled with, you know, every other sentence had three exclamation points after it. You know, it was chock full of boldface. I mean, it broke every rule your high school English teacher, you know, told you. Um, uh, and yet, uh, and then the oral argument was a similar disaster. But it was a circuit split, and the, you know, the justices had to decide the question in the way that made the most sense, and they decided that the taxpayer's case was the winning case. And really, nothing the Solicitor General's office could have done could have salvaged that that victory uh, for them. So, at the end of the day, you know, you're an advocate. <laughs> you do the best you can with the case and the facts and the law that you have, and uh, you know that can help you maybe fall asleep at uh, 3 a.m. if you know if everything else fails. Sure. Well, uh, hopefully you don't find yourself on, on too many of those unwinnable cases in the future. I think we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Mr. Mark Haddad of Sidley Austin, thanks so much for being on the podcast to, to share your views here. I really appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. And with that, our program for December 23rd, 2016 is complete. Hope you enjoyed those conversations and hope you have a very pleasant holiday. Talk to you next week.